0: Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. That this book that we have in our laps and before us is, is not just the word of human authors written at various points in history. It's not describing their mere interactions with you, that these are your very words that you have inspired these writers to write. And what an awesome privilege it is that we can come and we can hear your word proclaimed together as a people. And now, God, as we take a few moments to unpack this passage that we have read We pray you would speak to us in it and through it. That the words would spring off of the page and penetrate into our minds and more so our hearts and that your spirit would do its work to take the words that he has inspired and help us to to understand to hear, to see, and to know. So we ask you give us eyes to see and ears to hear the wonderful things that you have for us in your word. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name, and all God's people said, Amen and Amen. Well, one of the things uh, that is probably most well-known about the life of Jesus are his miracles, the miracles that Jesus performed during his earthly ministry. Even people who have just the, the barest, faintest familiarity with Jesus, one of the things if pressed to ask them, they would say they know about Jesus is that he was a man who worked a lot of miracles. Indeed, his entire earthly ministry is presented for us in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the Gospel that we are studying together, which is John. Uh, You see Jesus doing that very thing on numerous occasions. Jesus had demonstrated his uh, absolute power and control uh, over the physical universe. He was able to walk on water. When a storm came upon the Sea of Galilee, while he and his Disciples were in a boat, Uh, he could just speak a word and bring calm and stillness to the wind and the waves. Jesus had control over the physical world, he also had control over the the unseen world or the immaterial world. Jesus could cast demons out of persons, restore them to, to to, to full health. So, Jesus had power and control over. The physical world, the spiritual world, and he had the power, as was demonstrated many times, to bring healing to people's people's physical bodies. Jesus had done dozens of miracles recorded in the Bible. Today we heard read for us the very first one, as it says in verse 11 of this passage, the very first of Jesus' miracles, or some translations would have it as the very beginning. This is the first miracle that Jesus performed. Now, as a little context, we're at the beginning of John's gospel. Chapter 1, we saw in the last week, was uh, Jesus' first interactions uh, or first meeting with the ones who he eventually would call to be disciples and apostles. Jesus' very first interaction with a handful of them. And so now he's kind of got this group of guys that are his disciples following around him, and it's at the very beginning of his ministry that the first miracle uh, is recorded for us. Now, let me just kind of give you a survey of this passage. It's a very well-known passage. I'm sure you all are quite familiar with it. Um, But let me just kind of run through here the five main kind of sections of this this passage. First, we have the setting. It's the third day. And now this is reference to the very first week of Jesus's ministry that John records for us. So there's John the Baptist on the first day, and then the next day Jesus encounters a bunch of other disciples, and they follow him, and he tells us, now this is the third day, and here's the setting. It's a wedding. It's a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Cana was a a small little village or town in the north of Israel by the Sea of Galilee, and uh, Jesus has uh, lived and conducted a lot of his ministry up in that northern section of Galilee it's a, a wedding there and in the first century weddings would typically last about a week how many of you like that idea a week-long wedding how many of you prefer like if the one invitation came you're like oh i'm busy me. <laughs> i, mean, I kind of like the idea of a week uh, week-long wedding um, week-long weddings small village people would come and go but a lot of the times people would stay the entire time and as we would see a little bit later in this passage, um, the ones responsible for funding this entire feast is not like in our culture, which is the bride's side of the family. Do I have that right? Right? It was actually the groom's side. It's the groom who has to do that. How many of you like that idea? How many? Yes. For what's coming. That's right. That's right. I, who has daughters? And it's like, I like this idea. Yeah. It's, it's biblical. It's biblical. Um, good luck. Yeah, good luck with that. So, so it's a wedding, it's a week long festivity, and Jesus' mother is there, John tells us, and that Jesus himself is invited along with his other disciples. That's the setting. First of all, we need to know this, the setting. Here's the second part you need to notice there's the crisis. Chapter, or chapter 2, verse 3, um, the wine ran out. We're going to have more to talk about here in wine in a moment. The wine had run out in the middle of this celebration. We don't know how far into it it is, but obviously the celebration of the wedding is going on, and yet the, there's not enough wine to sustain to the end. And uh, Jesus's mother comes to Jesus and says, we have no wine. Now, Uh, I think you could gather from the context of all of this, that this is not known to all of the guests. As a matter of fact, the master of ceremonies isn't even really aware of this yet. So maybe Jesus' mother is there as a helper uh, and assisting. and Maybe they know the family and is helping in this. Anyway, she comes to Jesus. And Jesus uh, gives her a a little bit of a rebuke. He doesn't say, oh, dear mother, you know, or, or... something like that, he says woman. It'd be like the equivalent of, uh, of us saying ma'am. It's kind of like it's creating a distance there. Jesus is saying this to his mother, like ma'am. And then he says this, uh, what does this have to do with me? Uh, literally in the Greek, it would be what to me to you. What to me to you. It, it's kind of a, a short, curt, I wouldn't go so far as to say rude, but a very short and abrupt a uh, sharp kind of sentence that's distancing himself from his mother and saying hold on a second here and he gives the reason why and this is very important my hour has not yet come now everywhere in John's gospel when John speaks about the hour of Jesus it's in reference to the hour of his death the hour of his crucifixion and his subsequent raising from the dead rising from the dead, and his glorification in his glorified body. That's kind of, as a whole, referred to as, as that hour. So Jesus gives a mild rebuke to his, uh, to his mother, who's presenting him with this crisis, and uh, the, the implication there is, Jesus, you need to do something. And Jesus says, hold on a second here, my hour has not yet come. So that's the crisis, and then there's the miracle Jesus performs Uh, This miracle by filling up these jars with water, scooping out the water, and that water being taken then to the master of the feast, and it's now become wine. That's the miracle, verses 6 through 8. And then the outcome of this miracle that Jesus has performed. The master of the feast comes, who has tasted this water, And he compliments the bridegroom on this water. We'll speak about this, or this wine. We'll speak about this here in a moment. And then there's the summary. We saw referenced here. This was the the first of his signs that Jesus did in Cana in Galilee. And this is also an inclusio. Like he started by mentioning Cana in Galilee in verse 1. And this is kind of the end. It's kind of a bookend to to this thing here. So just a refresher. Remind ourselves, what's going on in this account? There's the setting, the crisis, the miracle, the outcome, and the summary. Now, one of the common, uh, most common ways of understanding this, this passage, why John has included this here, uh, one of the, the takeaways is the compassion of Jesus. The compassion of Jesus. Here you have what could be a very embarrassing situation. Culturally speaking, in a, in a culture that, uh, you know, in a somewhat honor-shame culture that we're, we're so unfamiliar with here in our, in our world, and a little bit of an honor-shame culture there, and in a high-hospitality culture. How many stories are there in the Bible when guests would show up and you would wash their feet and you would provide them with bread and you would provide them with, with wine and refresh them from their journey and traveling to you? High levels of hospitality was expected in this culture. And to, to run out, this is, could be a, a quite an embarrassing or shameful thing. So a lot of the, the interpretation of this passage is, look at the compassion of Jesus, who spares this family from a very embarrassing situation. And I believe that that's true. I believe that Jesus is very compassionate. That this wine that needed to provide, which was not only, uh, uh, it's not just a luxury like we would assume it to be in our world. Uh, It's a necessity. It's a staple in that day. So Jesus has compassion on the family to spare them from from their embarrassment. And I think that's a lesson we can gain from this. Uh, But I would like to say that I think there's a little bit more going on than that. There's a couple of uh, uh, things that, make me kind of say, I, I think John gives us some clues here that a little bit more is going on than just the compassion of Jesus here. As a matter of fact, notice that Jesus is actually reluctant to perform this miracle in verse 4. his mother comes in verse 3, says they've run out of wine, and Jesus goes, ma'am, what, what is this to me and you here? And then he says, my hour is not yet come. I, I, there's a reluctance on Jesus' part to do this. And then secondly, why, why was this kept a secret? We notice in verse 9 that no one knows that this has happened. The servants uh, knew that where the water had come from, but the master of the feast, he has no idea um, where this came from. And lastly, and here's the kind of the last thing to notice here. Notice how it ends in verse 11. This is the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana and Galilee, and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. What is it about this miracle that manifests his glory? That the disciples, which they, they already believed in him, right? They, they, we saw this in chapter 1. They already started to follow Jesus. What is happening to their belief here in this miracle? What, how is Jesus' glory manifested here? I would say that, yes, Jesus is compassionate, but something more is at play here. So in order to do that, let's look at, uh, let's look at the meaning of wine in the Old Testament. And you can follow along, kids. If you've got a handout, you should be able to fill in some of those blanks there. Um, what is the meaning of wine in the Old Testament? Well, a couple of, uh, couple of things. Uh, wine is not just a staple and part of everyday diet in uh, in the in Bible times and in ancient Israel and the ancient Near East, uh, wine was, like I said earlier, not really a luxury like it is to us. It was a necessity. It's a staple. But wine, more than that, uh, has a couple of bits of meaning in the Old Testament. First, its abundance symbolized God's blessing. Its abundance symbolized God's blessing. In the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, uh, the description of God's blessing was the abundance of wine, sweet wine, like it was rolling off of the hills. That along with grain and oil, those main staples, that those being in abundance was a sign of God's blessing and his blessing of covenant faithfulness to his people, Israel. When When the people of Israel were living in proper covenant relationship with their God, God says, and I will pour out my blessing upon you. Now, there's a negative aspect to the abundance, and that is overconsumption or drunkenness. And this is a, this is a, a bad thing for numerous reasons. In the New Testament, drunkenness tells us, well, it leads to de- debauchery. If you're filled with wine, like the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians uh, chapter five. Then that's in some way he's connecting that to the filling of the Holy Spirit, and that's crowding that out. So there's a danger to to drunkenness or overconsumption. But but uh, related to that overconsumption and the negative part of that is that you're taking a God's good gift as a sign of His blessing upon His people, and you're overindulging on it. You're you're almost taking it. Uh, taking advantage of it. You're presuming upon God's blessing and his goodness. Okay, That's the, there's a negative side to the abundance, but the positive side is that when used rightly, that this is a, a symbol of joy and refreshment of your spirit, of celebration, which is why it is included in this, in his wedding. It was a feature of this wedding. The merging together of two lives faithfully committed to one another, picturing the union of Christ and his people, that this is marked as a a moment of joy and celebration. So its abundance is a sign of God's blessing, but its absence in the Old Testament scriptures in particular, its absence is a sign of God's curse or the curse of, breaking the covenant between God and Israel. It's a a, a curse that comes as a result of the people's disobedience to their Lord, their their God, not loving him with all their heart, soul, and strength. It's a result of their unfaithfulness to the covenant is that God withdraws his blessing upon his people. This is pictured uh, clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Where in Deuteronomy chapter 8, the word of the Lord comes through Moses. And as the people are about ready to enter into the promised land, it's kind of his final sermon. Moses' final sermon to the people as they're going in to get to the land of promise that God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says, and if you go into the land and you're faithful faithful to me, the Lord says, I will protect you. I will bless you. All the nations will come and bring tribute to you. I will open up the heavens and the rain will come down and you will have grain and you will have oil and you will have vineyards and vine and abundance of wine. But then he gives the warning, especially in chapters 28 and 29. And let me just read to you a couple of these. Here's Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 30, 39, and 51. Where Moses preaches to the people, you shall betrothed, then this is this is the curses you shall build a house and you shall not dwell in it you shall plant a vineyard but you shall not enjoy its fruit verse 39 you shall plant vineyards and dress them but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes for the worm shall eat them in verse 51 it it shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It shall not leave you grain, wine, or oil. The increase of your herds or the young of your flocks until you have, till they have caused you to perish. So the absence or withdrawal of these staples—oil, wine, and uh, oil and grain and wine—but in particular, in our purposes here. The wine is a sign of God's curses coming because of the people's disobedience and unfaithfulness to the covenant. But what about its re abundance? What does its re abundance mean? Because in the later parts of the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets speak about the day when the Lord will make a new covenant with his people that he will send his anointed servant, the anointed one, to come and to vanquish Israel's enemies and to restore his people. And connected with that, if you read through the prophets, you see inserted here and there part of the blessing, the return of that blessing. Now let me give you a couple of these verses. I didn't want to put them all on the the slides here. But let me just read to you uh, sections from... The prophets. And so if you want to write down these scripture references, you can. Let me. This is just a sampling. A sampling of what happens. The return of wine and in abundance as a sign that the Messiah had come, that the expectation in the Old Testament was when the messianic age was was to enter into wine would flow freely. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow and aged wine, well-refined. Notice the connection. That was Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6. Here's Jeremiah 31. And this is a passage that speaks very clearly about the new covenant it is, that's where we get the term New Covenant. It comes right from Jeremiah 31. Verses 12, 13, and 14 say this. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. The curses. Gone, new covenant is established. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Here's here's, uh, Hosea chapter 14, verse 7. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. He's talking about his people. Joel chapter 3, verse 18. And in that day... The mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. And lastly, from Amos chapter nine, the very end of Amos, which we saw uh, however long it was ago that we finished the Amos series when he says, behold, the days are coming. Verse 13 declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. Okay, remember that picture uh, there, that the reaper is no, no sooner has he just put that seed into the ground that it's an abundance has come and that the reaper has to come and take it. It's so like following right behind him. There's no like month-long, season-long delay. The treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, meaning they're, they're, they're right on top of each other. And the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. Got the picture here of what wine means in the, in the Old Testament. Its abundance was a sign of God's blessing, gift to them, It's uh, absence, his withdrawal of that blessing was from the curse of their disobedience. But then the Lord has promised that one day that I will reestablish this covenant with my people and then the abundance of my grace will come and it will manifest itself in the return of the wine again. You see this picture? So now back to this passage in John chapter 2. What is that having to do with our passage in John t- chapter 2? I think there is some, some depth here that we need to observe. On a superficial level, it looks like Jesus is showing up into town. He's sparing these people from an embarrassing situation. And he's, he's needing to, uh, to address and try to bring some honor to these people in their situation. But I think that when it comes to things like this, there's something also happening in the background. That there's a picture of the absence of the wine or running out of the wine shows a symbol that they're still kind of in the old covenant. That this is still the result of the curse and the the fall. Seen in that light, that Jesus' winemaking here is... A compassionate act, no doubt, but it's more than a compassionate act. It's evidence that the new covenant has come and that he is the Messiah. And this is seen in a couple of ways. First of all, notice the the quantity. Notice the quantity. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars, therefore... The Jewish rites of purification. Now stop there. Stone water jars, they were not like clay water jars. They needed to be stone because then that could be still regarded as ceremonially clean uh, from a Jewish perspective. Okay, And it says that these jars were there specifically for the Jewish rites of purification and washings. We see this in like Leviticus and other passages in Deuteronomy. So this old covenant practices. They're Jewish rites for purification, which is just adding to this layer about this restoring of this wine in abundance. That there's a transition that's really happening here from an old covenant system to the new covenant that's coming in Christ. Uh, so notice the six jars, and then it says each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So somebody want to do the math? Let's just average. 25. What's 25 times 6? 150. 150. So let's go the high end. Uh, what does it say? 30 gallons? 30 times 6. 180. 180. Homeschooled? <laughs> Good job. So 150. Stop and think about this. Let's go the high end. Uh, so 150 to 180. Did I say gallons? So 150, 180 gallons. Okay. So 180 gallons. Now, I, I pulled out this bottle of wine that was gifted to us many years ago from some relatives uh, from a winery in Goshen, Indiana, hotbed of vine making. <laughs> and so we'll edit this part out if your family's listening. The, so, th- which is why we still have this. I think we've had it for several years. We're not trying to age it or anything. Um, so, so here's here's a bottle. Of, so typical. The reason why I brought this. Typical bottle, 750 milliliters. Okay, going metric on us now. 750 milliliters, which is roughly uh, a fifth of a gallon. So to get one gallon of wine, you would need five of these. Okay. What was the high end of it? Gallons, wise? 180. 180 times 5. What is that? <laughs> Homeschooled. <laughs> 900. Jesus, and by the way, these were not like partially full. What does it say in verse 7? And they filled them to the brim. 900 bottles of wine Jesus made. 900 Bottles. What's the largest wedding you've ever attended? The, the most amount of guests that you've ever been at? Two, 250? 400. Four, 400, that's a big wedding. How many of you typically go to a wedding, there's maybe 150, 200 people? Right? So 150, 200 people. Cana is a small village, remember, in Galilee. A small village. So even if family traveled from afar, you're, you're still... Okay, if we even stretched it, say 300 or more people came. Say 300 people. And they've already been there for a while, number of days, enough for the wine to have run out. Jesus made three bottles a person. Three bottles a person. Just to capture the scale of this. This is really abundant. Can you imagine showing up at the wedding and going, oh, here's your name card, here's your table, and here's three bottles to every single person. You know, Emmy shows up, here's your three. <laughs> Can you imagine? So, needless to say, the, the party would be able to extend past when people would, would be willing to stay. So notice the quantity of the jars. And notice that they came from something that was for ceremonial washing in the Old Testament system. And Jesus transforms that and he says, and turns it into something that this is a sign of the abundance of the new covenant and he is the Messiah. So there's the quantity. Let's look at the quality of the wine too. Verse eight. And he said, this is Jesus, said to the, to the servants, draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. So it's kind of like a master of ceremonies or probably a, a head um, You know, the head waiter or head organizer of the whole thing. Party planner. What do they call them? Wedding planner. planner. Okay, so basically like the, the family wedding planner. So the wedding planner takes it to the wedding planner, the master of the feast. He tastes the water, now become wine. He did not know where it came from. The servants knew. And the master of feasts, whoa, stop, calls the bridegroom. Because remember, it's the bridegroom side of the family that was responsible for funding all of this. I'm hanging on to that. Hanging on to that. This. Paul's with me. We got, you know, a brood of, brood of ladies. So we got, it's biblical. So he calls him and he brings him over. He goes, and he, 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 he exposes kind of an ancient technique that was happening in those days. He says in verse 10, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. Okay. So let's kind of makes sense, you know, like water it down a little bit. You know, maybe the good stuff at first, and then you add water, which they would typically do. Typically, wine was not served at full strength; they would dilute it to like one third, even to one tenth. So, so they would probably have a slightly diluted uh, amount at the start of the wedding, and then would continue to add more water to it to dilute as the week went on. What Jesus is giving them is vintage, top of the line undiluted stuff that the guy stops and he brings the bridegroom. He goes, you know what? Normally, the normal practice is, you know, and I'm experienced at this. I can see what happens. You guys kind of water it down. You did the exact opposite. You watered down the early stuff and you're bringing out even more of this abundant stuff at the end. Right? Isn't this mind-blowing? And then he says, but you have kept the good wine until now. So those, those two things alone, the quantity of this wine of the reabundance of God's blessing and the quality of it. This is why the disciples who are with Jesus behind the scenes, and again, the regular attendees, not even aware that there was an issue. Even the master of ceremonies didn't even know that there was a shortage, an impending shortage. But Jesus' mother knew, because that's why she came to Jesus and said, they're out of wine. You think that Mary didn't know what she was asking? That Jesus even had to rebuke her and say, hold on, my hour hasn't yet come. The disciples knew, because notice how it says, and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in it. That's how Jesus' glory was manifested. That's what Jesus' coming means. And right here at the outset of his ministry, the very first miracle he does is a miracle that isn't even perceived by a lot of people, but just perceived by his mother and his disciples that he really is the Messiah. He really is the initiator of the new covenant of grace that has come. He's the one. And with all of the attendant blessings that come along with it. When the disciples saw that, they go, whoa, this has manifested his glory. Not just that he was compassionate to a group of people. No, he declared who he was to his disciples. And they believed. Friends, that's, that's what we have through faith in Jesus Christ. When we see this miracle, let's don't just see Jesus is compassionately bailing out uh, people from an embarrassing situation. No, it's much more than that. What we see here is the establishment of the new covenant with all of its blessings coming in the person of Jesus Christ. And the disciples saw it and they believed it. And I pray that we would see that and believe it as well. That really, through faith in him, we have All of the blessings, and I'm talking not just earthly or temporal, I'm talking, big word here, eschatological blessings. End time blessings. That this, what happened at this wedding was just a foretaste of the feast that we get to have in the kingdom of God with Christ forever. Amen? Amen. And with that in mind, I thought we would save the Lord's Supper and communion for the end. Because that wine and the abundance of the joy and blessing and celebration that comes with the blessings of the new covenant, Jesus ties that to the new covenant in the last supper that he shares with his disciples over Passover weekend. And he takes the normal... Elements of the meal and he takes the two main elements and he says to them, this is my body broken for you. This grain, this abundance of grain that's now come to us in season. It's my body broken for you. And the wine. This is grape juice, but you with me. And the wine. This is the blood of what? The new covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever we take this, we're not only remembering Christ, these are the means of grace he's given us to nourish us physically with the truth of the gospel, the way the truth of the gospel nourishes us spiritually. Amen? And so to transition to our feast out there, let's take this meal together. We'll sing the doxology, and then we will go and continue our celebration. But with that, let me pray first. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful good gifts that you give us. We know that every good and perfect gift comes down from you, the Father of lights, including... The fruit of the ground and the fruit of the vine. And we thank you that that this meal that we're taking is, is no small thing. That this meal is the meal that Jesus gave to us to remind us of the gospel, that the anointed one has come, the Messiah is here, that his kingdom is here, that salvation is here. The forgiveness of sins is here and that he has given these to us to remind us of that truth. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We praise you for these good gifts you give us. God, we have confessed our sins to you and we ask that you would cause us to continue to examine ourselves here in these few moments as we get ready to take this this meal together. And that when we take it, may we, may it do its intended purpose of reviving uh, us in our souls and in our spirits. So we give you thanks for these gifts. And it's in Christ's mighty name and all God's people said, amen and amen.